Section 25 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 18 The Troubled Years of King Edward, Part 3. The spring of 1470 saw many sudden changes in England. Edward moved resolutely against the rebels and everyone knew that although he might be dilatory and careless for long periods, yet once he was started on an enterprise, he was likely to finish it successfully. At the beginning of March, it was known that the king was going in person into Lincolnshire. It was supposed that the Earl of Warwick would accompany him. But although summoned to the king's host, Warwick and Clarence preferred to remain in Warwick Castle, from which they might effect a junction with the insurgents who were coming south. But Edward's movements were too rapid. He marched toward Lincolnshire. On March 12th, he met the rebels at Eppingham in Rutlandshire. The king had a good following. It was said that there were never seen in England so many goodly men and so well arrayed in a field. The success which always seemed to follow the king when he went into battle attended him now, the rebels made no stand. The royal artillery tore through their ranks, and from the precipitation with which they fled, the battle became known as Lose Coat Field, for the Lincolnshire men threw away their coats the lighter to run away. Sir Robert Wells and three of his men were captured and beheaded, but the king, we are told, showed grace and favor to the ignorant and guiltless multitude. Sir Robert Wells, before dying, confessed that Warwick had been at the bottom of the rebellion, intending, if successful, to make Clarence king. The Battle of Eppingham had prevented Warwick from joining the insurgent army. The rebellion was quashed by King Edward's swift strategy. Recognizing that for the time at least the game was finished, Warwick and Clarence fled north, first to Chesterfield, then to Manchester, hoping to get assistance from the men of Lancashire. But Edward, going north too, followed in their tracks. They did not wait, but flying south again, they reached Exeter and then Dartmouth, where Warwick's influence with the seafaring people procured a few small ships to carry him and Clarence with their respective households to Calais. King Edward, as a matter of fact, did not pursue them far, he stopped at York to receive the homage of the gentlemen of the county, but he could not leave Warwick's brother as Earl of Northumberland. John Neville had not taken part either in Robin of Reedsdale's rebellion or in that of Sir Robert Wells. On the other hand, he had done nothing and had been no help to the king. So on March 25th, Edward took from him the earldom of Northumberland and restored it to the Percys. As a consolation, he raised Neville a step in the peerage as Marquis Montague. Small consolation, indeed, for the loss of the ancient earldom of Northumberland with its wealth and privileges. King Edward had thus won a great victory. He had triumphed in the field over his enemies. The great kingmaker himself was a fugitive scouring the channel, a pirate in the narrow seas. Yet, within six months, by another sudden turn of fortune's wheel, Edward himself was a fugitive abroad, and Warwick was once more king-making in England. Again, the wheel of fortune turned, and another six months after saw Edward safely back in England, 
never more to go on his travels. The rest of Warwick's doings in 1470 are of a wonderful kind. He must have appeared off Calais toward the end of April. Edward, suspecting that this was his destination, had sent special orders warning Lord Wenlock, the lieutenant of the tower, not to admit him. These orders, Wenlock, though a friend of Warwick, did not care to disobey. Moreover, the merchants of Calais were bound to Burgundy by strong ties of commerce, and Charles of Burgundy let them know that he was supporting Edward. So Warwick was refused admittance to Calais, although he attempted to force an entry by bombarding the port. While his ships lay in the roadstead, his daughter, the Duchess of Clarence, who was present with her husband, was delivered of a son. It is said that Warwick's supplies were so reduced by this time that he had to beseech the lieutenant of Calais as a special concession to send two flagons of wine for the invalid duchess. Then Warwick sailed away toward Normandy, capturing all the Flemish and English merchantmen that he could find on the way and throwing their crews into the sea. He landed at Arfleur on May 6th, where his men sold the booty they had taken from the merchantmen. Charles of Burgundy, by way of reprisal, seized all the French ships which came to the fair of Antwerp. The next two months brought one of the greatest diplomatic revolutions that have ever occurred in history. It was as if the Middle Ages were ending amid the destruction of all accepted ideas to give place to a doctrine of opportunism. It is necessary for a prince wishing to hold his own to know how to do wrong. Footnote. Machiavelli, Prince, Chapter 15, and Footnote. Warwick, to maintain himself in this world, was willing to do what in all his past life he had held to be wrong. He was going to put down one of England's strongest kings and to restore her weakest. The other parties in this great diplomatic revolution, Queen Margaret and Louis of France, are much easier to justify. It must have been a terrible effort for Queen Margaret to consent to ally her cause with Warwick. It was he of all others who had worked most steadfastly to ruin her family. It was he who personally had led her husband, ignobly bound by thongs, to prison in the Tower of London. It was he who had cast doubts on the legitimacy of her son. Yet in accepting Warwick's help now she broke no promises, she abandoned no friends. She felt that Warwick had fearfully wronged her, but now that he was ready to do her service it was not for her to judge his motives, but to accept his help for what it was worth. Nor had Louis XI any reason to reject the Earl. It was the business of the King of France to protect his country. He had offered a peaceful alliance to King Edward, and his offer had been refused, not even courteously, but with scorn. The Anglo-Burgundian alliance was a serious danger to France which was just winning its way to a stable condition after a hundred years of turmoil. If Warwick could restore the Lancastrian friends of France, it was not for Louis to object. So under the skillful mediation of King Louis, the great alliance was gradually arranged. Queen Margaret and the Earl of Warwick made terms, and her last great assault was prepared against the Yorkist house. At this time, Margaret was in France urging Louis through her follower, the famous lawyer Fortescue, 
to lend her an expeditionary force against the Yorkists. The arrival of Warwick with bitterness in his heart against King Edward was too good a chance for her advisers to miss, and they worked hard to overcome her scruples. Louis XI, too, used all his influence. After twenty days of intricate negotiation and discussion at Angers, Margaret was at last induced to accept Warwick's help. She received the apologies of the Earl from his knees, and she allowed a contract of marriage to be made between her son, Prince Edward, and Anne, the younger daughter of Warwick. King Henry was to be restored to the throne of England, the Prince Edward and Princess Anne were to succeed him when he died, only if their issue failed was the Duke of Clarence to succeed to the throne. This arrangement seemed to leave Clarence further from the crown than ever. But it is to be feared that his weakness was such that Warwick only looked upon him as a convenient but not very reliable tool. Once the alliance of Warwick and Margaret was concluded, no time was lost in preparing a strong expedition. Meanwhile, King Edward was following his usual practice, when danger was not actually present, of leaving things alone. Charles of Burgundy, who had no desire to lose the important friendship of England, sent him continual warnings that tremendous danger was threatening from the side of Warwick. Edward indeed did something, but not enough. He sent out a fleet under Antony Rivers, Lord Scales, to patrol the channel, but it seems not to have kept the sea long enough. Charles of Burgundy did more. He had a fleet which regularly blockaded the Seine, and prevented Warwick's expedition from moving. But a September gale forced the Burgundian fleet to abandon its watch for a time, and so cleared a passage for Warwick. Queen Margaret and her household remained in France to await the event. The Earl, with a force of which the numbers are not known, crossed the Channel on or about September 8, 1470, and effected a landing in Devonshire at Dartmouth. The people of the county showed goodwill. Soon quite a large force was gathered around the Earl. Edward, in spite of the warnings of Charles of Burgundy, was taken by surprise. He was in Yorkshire, with a force to deal with a small insurrection which no doubt had been arranged for the purpose of drawing him thither. When he heard of the landing of Warwick, and of the lack of any opposition to the Earl, he came to the conclusion that his only chance was flight. If he had had a good force, he would doubtless have made a stand. There was no cowardice in King Edward, but the levies of the north were not with him. Warwick's brother, the Marquis Montague, was at this time staying at Pontefract. He now requited the clemency and confidence with which Edward had honored him by forming a conspiracy to kidnap the king as he was lying at Doncaster. Montague was a man of great power in the north. Edward, when he heard of this plot through a spy, realized that his condition was perilous. He made all speed to King's Lynn in Norfolk, where a small ship of his own and two Flemish vessels were lying. Getting on board on October 3rd without baggage or money, he set sail for the territories of his Burgundian brother-in-law. The extraordinary suddenness with which Edward lost his kingdom surprised contemporary observers. The monkish chronicler of Croyland explains it by referring to the apathy of the people of England. When Warwick and his men landed in Devonshire, the people showed this attitude, not so much joining them 
as waiting upon them to show them every attention. The country by this time seemed to have lost interest in the Wars of the Roses, and to be content to accept anyone who was strong enough to take the kingdom from his opponent. The shrewd Burgundian official, Philippe de Comines, explains the flight of Edward in another way. It was very surprising to see this poor king run away in this manner and be pursued by his own subjects. He had indulged himself in ease and pleasures for twelve or thirteen years together and enjoyed a larger share of them than any other prince of the time. It seems true that Edward had been self-indulgent and careless. He showed great energy and boldness when a crisis was actually present, but in the periods of comparative quiet between each crisis he was neither prudent nor careful. At the present juncture, with the stout body of eight hundred men or more who stood by him, he might have made a good fight, but he would almost certainly have lost his realm and his life. His flight was certainly not due to a lack of courage. It only showed that he realized at last the need of prudence. A kingdom as easily lost might be as easily rewon. By the time he regained it, Edward had learnt his lesson. There was no chance of the crown slipping from him again. He was fortunate to obtain a fair passage to Holland, although his ship was chased by some Easterlings, men of the Hanseatic League, who at this time were on bad terms with the English. He dropped anchor just off the little port of Alkmaar in Friesland. There Louis de Bruges, seigneur de la Rutuse, who was governor for the Duke of Burgundy in Holland, came to him and showed every kindness. Edward was so poorly furnished with money at the time of his flight that he had only been able to pay the master of the ship that carried him with a gown lined with martin skins. By the seigneur de la Rutuse, Edward and his friends were brought to the Hague, and news of their arrival was sent to the Duke of Burgundy. Meanwhile, eleven days had sufficed for Warwick to gain England for King Henry the prisoner in the tower. The flight of Edward was a public acknowledgment that the kingdom was at the disposal of the earl. Moreover, Warwick's following, after he had been a short time in the country, seems to have grown very large. The Lancastrian gentry would of course flock to him, as he represented Queen Margaret and meant to restore Henry VI. The many neutral people too, and they seem typical of the mass of Englishmen then, would come to him, wishing to stand well with the new government. But Edward, when he fled from the country, left many friends behind him. These he advised at the time, through his faithful chamberlain, Lord Hastings, to submit to the Earl of Warwick and to wait for better times. They took the advice and quietly waited for Edward's return. This explains the transitory character of the Lancastrian restoration. It explains, too, the essential stability of King Edward's position. The Londoners were known to be his friends, and London was the heart of England. But for a time, all went well with Warwick. The Londoners made no resistance, and the newcomers, on October 6th, were able to enter the city and occupy the chief places. The Earl's first act was to go to the Tower to restore King Henry to the throne. Since his imprisonment there in 1465, Henry had been well treated. He saw his friends occasionally, and he bore his captivity with complete equanimity. 
Warwick, when he had led Henry to the tower in 1465, had cried, Treason, treason, and behold the traitor. But now he proclaimed him king, attended him to his palace in Westminster, and restored to him his royal prerogative. On October 13, 1470, a solemn procession was held, and in St. Paul's the crown was publicly placed on King Henry's head, the poor king remaining subdued and silent like a crowned calf. All laws were once more enacted in the name of King Henry, and all writs and patents were dated in the forty-eighth year of his reign. But there was no great joy at the restoration, more especially as the Kentish men who came to London with Warwick took the opportunity to plunder where they could the houses of the citizens. End of section 25